Thank you, Johnny. Well, thank you very much. And let me say that it is a real joy to be here. I'm thrilled with what God is doing. I have a daughter and a son-in-law that attended here as well as two nieces, one that graduated and one that came just for a short while. If you have your Bibles with you, I want to invite you to turn with me to Psalms 119. In a few moments, I'm going to begin reading at verse number 33. The truth is, the decisions that you are making now while you're at college are going to be the decisions that really have a lot to do with the the way your life ends. You always have to begin with the end in mind. You lead with the end in mind. When I was a student, I was 23 years old. I was not converted to faith in Jesus Christ until the age 20. My dad checked out when I was seven, raised in a government project with uh, five brothers and sisters because dad left and dropped out of high school when I was 16 years old. No purpose direction in life until at the age of 20, a carpenter began to talk to me about church. I'd never been to a Sunday school class, never been to revival service, never been to a Sunday night service. Started slipping in on Sunday morning. The spirit of God began to work in my life, brought me under conviction. I went back on a Sunday evening And I made the single most important decision I ever made in my life. And that is to repent of my sins, place my faith in Jesus Christ. He radically changed my life. Now, 35 years later, I've never, never gotten over it. And I remember uh, not long after I became a believer, I began to sense that God wanted to do something with my life. I sensed the call to vocational ministry. The reason I dropped out of high school is I wouldn't give a public book report. And now to think that maybe I would end up being a minister and standing every week. Uh, to report, but nonetheless, God's grace is sufficient. So God called me. And so at 23 years of age, I went to uh, Gardner Webb University and uh, wish I'd have known more about liberty in those days, but nonetheless, here I was as a student. And in those early days, I want you to hear my heart. I really made a commitment to really make a difference. I was not, I was not satisfied just with this casual Christianity. I was not interested And just knowing I had a fire escape policy and as a result of trusting Christ, I'd not be a crispy critter. But instead, I wanted to really be dedicated to Jesus. I wanted my life to count for God. I made decisions then. I made decisions that, yes, I'm going to find me the Bible-believing church, be there on Sunday morning, and then I'm going to be active. I'm going to find out what I can do, and I'm going to connect with that fellowship. And I'm, I'm going to be the type church member that I would like one day to pastor or one day to lead or one day to be associated with whatever God would do in my life. And I'm telling you, those decisions that I made in the early days made all the difference in the world. If God can take a kid out of a project, God can take a kid without a father in his life and use him in some way, God can use anyone. And he really wants to use our life. Now, I want you to listen. Let me just introduce this text. Psalms 119 is the longest chapter in your Bible. It's almost in the middle of your Bible, 176 verses. Each of these texts are in eight-verse couplets. Uh, The theme is sort of around eight. There's 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet. Each of the sections of eight-verse couplets begins with a Hebrew letter right through the 22 letters of the alphabet. Eight is a number of new beginnings. And the psalmist has found himself at a place in his life where he senses he needs a touch from God. He needs a new beginning. So with that in mind, listen to his plea before God. 
Beginning in verse 33, he says, teach me, O Lord, the ways of your statues, the ways of your word, and I shall keep it to the end. In other words, you teach me and I will keep it. Give me understanding that I shall keep your law. Indeed, I shall observe it with my whole heart. Make me walk in the path of your commandment. That's interesting. Make me do it. Make me do it. For I delight in it. Why in the world would you need to ask God to make you do something you delight in? There's some great truth here. So listen up. Include, in, incline my heart to keep your testimonies and not to covetousness. Turn my eyes away from looking at worthless things and revive me in your way or in your word. Establish your word to your servant who is devoted to fearing you. Turn away my reproach, which I dread, for your commandments are good. Behold, I long for your precepts. Revive me in your righteousness. Now, I want you to listen to this. Starting at verse 33, down through verse 40, listen to these petitions united with the use of imperatives. Teach me, give me, make me, incline my heart, turn away my eyes, revive me, establish your word, turn away my reproach, revive me. And in this particular text, he is, he's crying out to God. He realizes that unless God comes to his rescue, he will be like the rest of those who are part of the family. And that is those who never make much of a difference for the kingdom of God. So in this passage before us, the psalmist reflects on the road of blessedness. He, he knows that there's more to life than what he's been experienced. And he wants God to come to his aid and to help him to be the person that he needs to be. Now listen carefully to this. This is an awesome prayer to pray. And it's almost as though every word he says is saturated with this thought. It's as though he's saying, Lord, I'm not there yet, but I'm willing to be made willing. What an incredible prayer to say, I'm not there yet. I, I don't even know how to get there, but God, I'm willing to be made willing. And so the psalmist is coveting a ending well type life. If you could fast forward and say, when I get to the end of my life, get to where my parents are now, get to where my grandparents are, if God allows me to live, here's where I would like to be. And so a good beginning ought to lead to a good ending, but that's not always the case. Uh, take Lot in the Bible, Samson, King Saul, Demas, all had good be beginnings, but their lives ended in tragedy. So ending well, ending well is the consequences of living well. In fact, listen to this statement. If you don't think that there's potential for you not to end well, you must think that you're godlier than David, stronger than Samson, and wiser than Solomon. And so with that in mind, I want to just give you some talking points to consider. I want you to notice that he begins with a prayer for education in verse number 33 when he simply says, teach me. In other words, God, God I want you to speak into my life. The Bible teaches in John chapter 16, Jesus ascended back to heaven. He sent the Holy Spirit because he said, I'll never leave you alone or comfortless. And he said, and he will teach you all truth. And so he is our teacher. So there is a petition that he makes and the petition, listen carefully, has a tone of humility and dependence that comes through. He sees God's word as a path to be followed. And so he says, Lord, I make this petition, but I also make a promise. And that is, I am learning in order to do. In other words, what I want you to do is take the word of God, speak into my life. But the reason 
I want you to teach me this is that I may obey. He said, I will keep it to the end. Here's what he's saying. Yes, Lord, to your will and to your way. So the commitment is made before the truth is revealed. Did you hear what I just said? The commitment is made before the truth is revealed. God does not teach you his word so that you may have the option to obey. You obey first and then God teaches you his truth. And so here he is saying, I'm saying yes, and I don't know what your will is. But when you show me, my yes is already on the table. Where we make major, major fault in flandering around in our lives is, we come to the point that we think that God's will is optional. And we begin to say, well, I'll tell you what, show me what it is and I will determine whether I want to do it or not. No, the Bible says in 2 Timothy 3, 7, you'll be always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. So there's a prayer for education, teach me. But with the petition, he makes a promise and I will keep your word. But then in verse number 34, there's a prayer for illumination. Now, what's the difference in being taught knowledge and then understanding? Listen carefully. There's three words that are magnified in the Proverbs, which you've been in challenge to read the Proverbs over the next 31 days. I've been reading the Proverbs every morning with few exceptions, reading through them every 31 days for the last 15 years. You may say, why? Wisdom is the ability to live life skillfully. I need God's help to do that. Now listen to this. You have three different things that's going to help you at this school. Number one, knowledge is what you'll gain by education. You'll sit in a classroom, you'll take a test, and you'll gain knowledge. But what's the difference in knowledge and understanding? Understanding can only be gained by experience. So some of you haven't, haven't been out there to experience anything yet. Some of you are going to go into vocational ministry. I'll tell you one thing, it will not be like you heard in the classroom when you get in the real work. It's just different. Number three, there's wisdom. Now, don't miss this. If knowledge comes from my educational system, if understanding comes as a result of what I learned through life's experience, where does wisdom come from? Wisdom is a gift from God. It comes from heaven. Matter of fact, here's what's going to happen. It's just a matter of time. The day's going to come where you're going to be a senior, many of you already are, and people are going to call folks like Johnny and Dwayne, they're going to say, hey, we're looking for someone that you could recommend for a particular ministry. And they'd say, I've got just a guy, just a girl for you. And here's going to be their statement. Their head, listen, their head and shoulders above the rest of the student body. Why would you make such a statement? Because God has given them wisdom. And there's a difference. And so wisdom doesn't come by what you learn in a book. It has nothing to do with your IQ. It has everything to do with your intimacy with Almighty God. And so the question is, do I want to hear from God? And so, yes, God, teach me. But give me understanding. My wife, she's probably watching me if this is on uh, the web. But nonetheless, she's always listening to see if I've got anything decent to say. But listen to this. My wife, people will tell jokes. She loves jokes. She, she can never remember them. To tell them right, she always misses the punchline. But when you tell her a joke, I may just fall over laughing and she just stands there. But then we'll go home, go to bed, and I go to sleep. And I'm awakened about midnight with her laughing uncontrollably. And I'll say, Janet, what under heaven is so funny? She says, that joke that I heard today, I just got it 
And she's laughing, and then she says, and then she'll say this, you didn't get it, did you? And I said, I did get it. Oh, no, you'd have laughed more. She said, it's so funny. Janet had knowledge without understanding. And then once she got the understanding of it, man, she just thought it was out of this world. And I'm going to say something to you. How, how often it's been said as we grow older, I wish, I wish to God I had known then what I know now. Would you look at, come on in real close. Let me say this to you. You can, but you need to apply yourself to wisdom now. If you think it's going to be different one day, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. When I get out of college, I'm going to, no, 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 no. Listen, in the next five to seven years, most of you are going to make the most important decisions of your life. If you don't get it right now, you don't get a second chance. And matter of fact, that some of the wrong decisions that we make by not applying ourselves to wisdom that's going to cost us in the long run. So here I am fired up this morning believing that this is the finest Christian university in the world and I have the opportunity to speak in your life and to try to get, capture your attention and not just, I didn't just come to give a little 30-minute homily. I came to speak truth and say, in Jesus' name, embrace this truth now because it's going to make a difference down the road. And I know you're concerned about down the road. And so give me illumination. Number three, verse 35, he says, I want to pray for direction. So in verse 35, he says, make me, listen to this, make me walk in the paths of your commandments for I delight in it. I'm, I'm intrigued by that. Why do you ask God to make you do what you delight in doing? I'll tell you why. Because there's a war. There's a war. Whether you believe it or not, there is a spiritual war going on for your soul. There's a spiritual war going on for your emotions. There's a spiritual war going on for your mind. There's a spiritual war going on for your affections. And the enemy's doing everything that he can. Paul put it this way in Galatians 5, 17. And by the way, when he wrote Galatians, he had just come out of the desert. He had not been a Christian in about three and a half years. God had sovereignly and supernaturally worked in his life. He, he had had a whole change of a biblical worldview. Everything had changed in his life. And he comes out and he pins by the Spirit of God, Galatians 5. And he says, the flesh lusts against the Spirit and the Spirit against the flesh. And they're contrary to one another so that you do not do the things that you wish. Here, here's what I would like to do in my life. And the Bible says you can't do what you like to do unless God sovereignly help you. The best way to translate grace is not just God's riches at Christ's expense. Not just the unmerited favor of God, but you know what grace is once you get it? It's the power to obey. God's grace empowers me to accomplish his plan for my life, and it is sufficient to cause us to will to do what he wills for us. So he says, I'm, I'm asking you, listen to this, I want you, Lord, to make me walk in the path. And by the way, let's don't just skim over the word path. What, what in the world is the emphasis of a path? A path is a way that generally has come into being from a constant use. Not, not being blazed uh, through the, the brush, trodden. It's a groove cut in the ground. And right now, wherever you spend most of your affection and your attention, listen to me, a groove is being cut. And, and I'm going to tell you something. It's going to be hard to get out of that. Some of you are here probably from Alaska, and I've gone there and preached on numerous occasions. And one of the things uh, as you leave uh, Anchorage headed north, especially during the winter when the signs are up, I don't know if they still have it, there used to be a sign there that say this, 
choose your ruts carefully, you'll be in them for the next 100 miles. And I want to say something to you students. Choose your ruts and paths carefully because, it's, hey, it's going to be harder to get out of them than you realize. And so he says, Lord, I want you to direct me so that I can follow your path. But let me go, let me go a step further. In verse number 36, there's a prayer for inclination. Inclination. Listen, listen to what he says in verse 36. Incline my heart to your testimonies and not to covetousness. What he's saying is, God, would you right now in my life establish a pattern that would be like a habit, habitual. Start reading the Proverbs as Dwayne has challenged you and John has challenged you. Establish that. Begin to read it every morning. Read a chapter every morning. Uh, read the day that corresponds with the day of the month. The day you'd have read the 13th chapter. And, 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 and let God establish a predictable pattern in your life. You see, the threat of the heart is always a real possibility. Isn't it amazing that he used the word covetousness? He said, Lord, establish my heart to your testimonies, which means to your word, and not to covetousness. Covetousness is a desire for things rather than for God. The, the word covetousness is a compound word in the Greek New Testament, and it, it's made up of two statements. More to won't. It's where America is. It's why we've just come through this major or in the process of this major economic crisis. It's because of covetousness and greed. The Bible says in Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 5 and in Colossians chapter 3 and verse 5, it labels covetousness with a defining terminology. It says, and covetousness is idolatry. In other words, he says, if you can never get to the place that God so established patterns in your life that you're satisfied with where God has you to be, you will constantly be dealing with idolatry. We think of idolatry by going to some foreign country deep into the bush and finding people kneeling between, before stones or wood. But ladies and gentlemen, if there's an adulterous and an idolatrous nation in the world, it's America, where we bow to things that have replaced God in our life as importance. And the Bible says it is idolatry. Then in verse number 37, there's a prayer for attention. He wants God to capture his attention. He says, turn my eyes away from looking at worthless things. Wow. Where, where do we stop there? How about internet pornography? How about channels when we're surfing that we stop on, that we know that God would not be pleased with our eyes landing there? So he says, Lord, I, I want you to capture my attention. I, I want my focus redirected. Would you turn away my eyes from looking? By the way, you need to ask God to turn you away because the flesh is too weak to turn away. But grace enables us. I bet one of the songs you guys sing around here from time to time is his grace is enough. I like to ask the question of our family at Woodstock every now and then, enough for what? I think it ought to be enough for everything. He says, and revive me in your ways. The word revive there carries the connotation of transforming life. God, I need you to capture my attention. Uh, let it be your word and the things of Jesus that attract me and, and help me to get my eyes off of those suggestive, sensual, sinful things and just establish this type of pattern in my life that you might be glorified. But then in verse number 38, let me talk to you about a prayer for realization. In verse 38, he says, establish your word to your servant. 
who is devoted to fearing you. Establish your word to your servant who is devoted to fearing you. What does he want to realize? He wants to realize who God is, where there's reverential respect for him. How do you view God? Do you get on your knees when you pray, when you're alone? Just to acknowledge that he's a sovereign, holy God and that you're a doulos, you are a servant who is ready to serve and with such energy that your feet is kicking up the dust as you do it. Do you realize that you are his subject and he is all-knowing, all-wise, all-powerful God? And so he says, I need this realization. I need an experience where I will see who you really are. So the fear of the Lord is dependence, as this verse indicates on one's certain trust in what he says in the Bible and then who he is. I believe what he says because I've come to realize who he is. So God, help me to realize. Give me an Isaiah chapter 6 experience so that maybe one day, unknowing to me, I go to the temple because I'm burdened over someone like a Uzziah that's died But instead of just allowing me to mourn over someone that's passed, how about capturing my heart and help me to realize who you are? And then when God captures your heart, the prayer of realization will be answered. You now know who God is. And then no longer is it a required chapel. It is an opportunity to worship the one whom you have reverential respect for. It changes everything about us. No longer is it, hey, if you go to Liberty University, is it true you have to go to a sign chapel seating three days a week? No, your attitude becomes, no, I get to go. By the way, there's a whole lot of difference in how you view God and the worship of God over what you have to do and what you get to do. And so I'm just going to be honest. If you're a college student, Unless it's different, and I'm just going to be honest with you. Since I'm at Liberty University and Dr. Falwell is such a great friend and his sons are such great friends, I would think that this would be a cut above. I mean, I would think that those of you that profess to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior would be actively involved in campus church or a local church back home or here. And I'll guarantee you this, if you're not now, and you're not making decisions with the end in mind, you won't be when you leave here. Write it down. My spiritual gift is exhortation. I normally encourage, but for whatever reason, I feel more prophetic today that maybe God just sent me to give a word. And I prayed this morning. I thought, Lord, I know I'm, not, I'm wise enough. I've been around long enough that I know everybody's not interested in hearing what I'm saying. Wish they were. But there are some here that came this morning. Maybe you said this morning, I need a word. I need a new beginning. I need somebody to challenge me. I need someone to raise the bar. I need to get more committed. Be committed. Number seven, there's a prayer for protection. That ain't one other thing and I'm through. Verse 39. The Bible says, "Turn." listen to this. Turn away my reproach, which I dread, which I dread, for your judgments are good. That's a prayer for protection. To bear reproach is to bear shame. The psalmist is asking God, to protect his reputation, his testimony. I wrote a book several years ago entitled it, The Building of a Spiritual Resume. And the subtitle is, 
having a testimony that will outlast you. Here's what he's praying for in his protection. He so desired to never disgrace the Lord and bring dishonor to his name. Did you know that 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 14 says, Because of this deed, David, you have given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme. He's saying, God, so far I'm living above reproach. I've not lost my testimony. I'm a professing Christian, and no one can actually come in and say this about me or that about me, which would bring reproach to the body of Christ, the name of Christ. Eddie Carswell wrote a song entitled, We Wear His Name. And when you do things that misrepresent his name, his character, it's like a mark, a slander from a pagan world against the name that is holy. And so he's saying, God, I need your help. I'm praying for your protection. May I never do anything. You know what I prayed for years? And, and this is strange, but the older I get, the, the more difficult it is to pray. Lord, I'd rather go to a premature grave than to commit some sin or offense that would bring reproach on the body of Christ, my family, your name, and those who have loved me and prayed for me and supported me. So I'm praying for your protection and I'm asking, establish your word. Turn away my reproach. I dread it, I dread, I dread ever doing anything that would bring reproach. Then verse number 40, eighth prayer a prayer for aspiration he says in verse number 40 behold I long for your precepts that means your word (laughs) revive me in your righteousness it means listen to this I'm just going to make it as clear as I can in the vernacular of Liberty University it means that Jesus Christ can Jesus Jesus Christ can so work in your life that you can get up on Monday morning and Wednesday and Friday and say I've got a lot of other things to do but I want to tell you what I'm most excited about I am excited about going to hear your word. He said, I've exalted my word above my name. On one occasion, the psalmist says, I lift my hands to your word. Now, truth is, we live in a generation, and I love it. I love the worship here. We have it at Woodstock. But the bottom line is, we oftentimes lift our hands to the music. You ever lifted your hands to the word? And can I say something? If it were not for the word, there would be no Christian music. Hello, hello, hello. That was a good place to say amen, by the way, if you're just looking for an opportunity to say, I'd like to amen this preacher before he goes back to Georgia. But prayer for aspiration. So he longed after the Lord's precepts. He he wanted God to make him alive, make him alive in the word. A deep longing for God's truth is what he prayed for. And that is exactly what God desired to give. I long for your precepts. Revive me in your righteousness. Keep me alive in your righteousness. He longs for a life-given righteousness that they could produce in their life. I don't know what you want to do with your life, but if you're waiting for whatever you want to do to begin, it already has. And you've got to begin with the end in mind. I believe one of the problems with spiritual leaders is we hope one day to make demands of those who we have the privilege to serve with to do things that we're not even committed to doing now. You know how you ought to be living right now? 
the way you hope everyone you serve with one day will live. And it's hard with integrity to call people to a commitment that we didn't have in our own lives. Now, Johnny said, you've got to 11, but if you quit 10 till, they'll love you because I've never heard a short sermon that I didn't enjoy. God bless you and listen to his word.